Good to see you all this morning. My name is Dave. I'm the manager of ministry operations here at Crossing Limestone. It is, uh, again, so good to see you. I'm glad you're here. Wanted to welcome you in the name of Jesus. Want to welcome you all who are joining us online. I am thrilled to have the privilege this morning of teaching from God's Word. A uh, quick announcement, if you are visiting with us and you would like more information on what it looks like to connect further with our church family, we uh, would invite you to just go to mysc3.org, mysc3, and uh Click on the button that says I'm new and there you can fill out a brief connect card, get a little information to us so we can send some further information to you about our church family and how to connect further. At the end of this service, uh, Brooke Thompson, our director for Summit Kids, is going to be up here with some announcements related to the reopening of Summit Kids classes. So if you are joining us online, I want to invite you to please uh, be sure to stay tuned for that at the end. Well, this morning we are continuing our teaching series through the Gospel of John, and this week we're picking back up where Pastor Joey finished last week uh, at John 3.16. We're just starting at the beginning and going straight through. We generally like to, to do that with books of the Bible or sections of Scripture. We'll sometimes take a break for a topical teaching, uh, but right now we're going through the book of John, and we'll be beginning today at John 3.16, which what an amazing privilege uh, to teach this text. I'll read the first part of today's passage for us before we dive in. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray again together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you so much for your son. Thank you that you loved us so much that you gave your son to be lifted up on the cross to pay the price for our sins, to bring us back to you. God, I pray during this time that you would uh, help me to speak what is true and helpful and clear and encouraging from your word. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to receive truth uh, that is encouraging and even truth that is um, difficult to hear. Lord, would you help us by your Holy Spirit? And ultimately, would you uh, change us by the power of the gospel, the power of your spirit, to be more like Jesus, to fall more in love with him, and to make him known to others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the Bible, and for good reason. It is such a clear and concise and beautiful sort of summary statement of really the heart of the Bible, the heart of the Christian faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. This is good news. Not just for becoming a Christian, but for every day of your Christian life. We love the gospel here, and we love to say that the gospel is for believers. We, we live by faith. We walk by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is joy and fuel and life for all Christians, that God loves us and gave Jesus to save us. But sometimes 
these truths and, and very familiar texts like John 3.16 can become so familiar that uh, they, they lose some of the, um, the clarity in our minds. Maybe they sort of become white noise and we, we lose the significance and the profoundness of them. What is it exactly that the Bible says Jesus saves us from? And what difference does it make in our lives? Now, those two questions are, are pretty much what, what all preaching could be about. What does the Bible say? What did Jesus save us from? And, and what uh, difference does it make in our lives? So we're not going to anyway try to uh, reach the end of that discussion here today. But from this text, this morning, I'd like to highlight three main ideas of what Jesus saves us from and how it changes our lives. Firstly, Jesus saves us from the judgment we deserve. The heart of the Christian message, the heart of the Bible in the book of John is that God so loved an undeserving world that he gave his only son to rescue us from what we do deserve. As difficult as it can be to hear, the Bible teaches that humanity rightly deserves judgment by God. It teaches that the problem with the world is not that we are morally good or sort of neutral people who have made mistakes and just need a do-over. The problem, the Bible says, is that we are corrupt people who love ourselves and sin and being praised more than we love God. Our hearts, our affections, our desires, our actions are all out of order. Verse 18 says that before coming to trust in Jesus, we were condemned already. We were all headed not toward eternal life, but toward perishing, verse 16 says, under the wrath of God, according to verse 36. That's what sin deserves. Because rebellion against our creator is indescribably, immeasurably serious. We're all sinners, both by nature and by choice. We inherited it, that's hard to say, we inherited it from Adam and We choose it for ourselves. This is the condition of the world. And yet, amazingly, the message of the Bible is that God loves this world. Paul says to believers in Ephesians chapter 2 who have, have trusted in Jesus, he said, God saved us because of the great love with which he loved us. You know, the Bible talks about people provoking God to wrath by their sin. But God never has to be provoked to love. It's just who he is. It's in his nature. God is love. We sometimes think that what God really wants most, what he enjoys most is punishing people, but that Jesus jumped in the way and got us off on a technicality and kind of twisted God's arm so that now he has to begrudgingly forgive us. And that's not what the Bible teaches. God loves to forgive. He loves to save. It's not a a New Testament new idea. In Ezekiel 33, 11, God says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God doesn't love to condemn. He loves to save. God is gracious and merciful. Now, don't misunderstand. Of course, it's, it's true that it's absolutely right when God condemns sinners who refuse to repent and believe. The judge of all the earth will do what is 
right, the Bible says. It's appropriate. We don't feel like it is, but it is. It's, it's fitting when God judges sin. And when he does, he, he displays the glory of his holiness and his justice. Sin cannot go unanswered for. We don't want a justice system in this world that just lets the, the worst of, of transgressors and criminals go free and, and not be held accountable for their actions. And we wouldn't really want a, a cosmic justice system that lets sin go unanswered for. It's right for God to um, uphold justice, it, and that's a, a good and appropriate thing for him. It just happens to be bad news for us because we're on the wrong side of God because of our sin. Sin cannot go unanswered for, but instead of striking down humanity in the Garden of Eden, he gave coverings to Adam and Eve to cover their shame, and he gave them the promise of a coming Savior. God is patient and merciful, and he loves to save, and this is why Jesus came. Just before John 3.16, Jesus said to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Pastor Joey told us last week how the, Ildri the Israelites in the Old Testament were in the wilderness in Numbers chapter 21, and because of their sin, they were being attacked and bitten by these what's called fiery serpents, these poisonous serpents. So they repented of their sin. They turned to God. They cried out, and God graciously told Moses to make a bronze serpent and to set it on a pole and lift it up such that Everyone who was bitten, when he looked up and saw that bronze serpent, he would live. And that's what Jesus said he came here to do for us. He came to be made like sin for us. So the thing that was destroying us, like the serpent, God said, take this brass and turn it into a serpent and make it an image of what is destroying you. And then lift it up and look to it. Just look to it and live. Receive forgiveness. Receive deliverance from this judgment. And this, this was this metaphor, this picture, it really happened, but it was a foreshadowing of what Jesus would come to do, that he would be made like sin for us, lifted up on the cross, treated like a guilty criminal, and die under the wrath of God in our place. We deserved God's wrath for our sin, but Jesus took it for us on the cross. And now everyone who looks to Jesus by trusting in him for salvation will live, will have eternal life, we get forgiveness. We get righteousness. We get our need met because God loves us. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. John 3, 17. This is incredibly good news, but it, not everyone hears it as good news. Many people, and you know this to be true in your own experience, Many people reject the gospel because it is so incredibly offensive. No one wants to hear that we deserve judgment. In our sin, we are allergic to that message. It's impossible in our sinful nature to accept it as true unless God miraculously changes our hearts. So he does. That's another aspect of the good news of the gospel and how Jesus saves us. Jesus saves us from the judgment we deserve. And secondly, Jesus saves us from the disguises that we wear. Let's see this in the text. Jesus saves us from the disguises that we wear. I was going to say Jesus saves us from the mask that we wear, and it was like 
after 11 o'clock last night that I remembered, oh, we can't sing that anymore. <laughs> That's too complicated and different distractions. Now I've distracted us with it, but um, we all tend to wear masks. We all tend to pretend to be a certain way, and we want to uphold a certain image. Look at what Jesus says. John 3, 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Hating the light, loving the darkness, unwilling to be seen in the light and known for who we really are. This is who we are. This is, this is what happens because of sin. Ever since the Garden of Eden, they re realized their shame because of sin and they hid. We're all natural-born hiders. We know how to wear a disguise and to point fingers and to shift the blame and to make excuses. Jesus came into this world, the light of God, speaking the words of God, doing the very works of God, shining God's light into the darkness of the world. And yet, the Bible says, apart from a miracle in our souls, we would all choose to avoid Jesus and stay in the dark. Now, a person may have some legitimate questions and misunderstandings that might keep them from believing the gospel for a long time. It may be a journey of tearing down walls and discovering the truth. So uh, be patient. There's hope. Keep praying for people. They may yet be saved, no matter if they've rejected the gospel for a while. But persistent, ongoing unbelief that does not ultimately repent is mainly a moral problem, not an intellectual problem. The problem is not that we don't have enough information. The problem is that ultimately, at some level, we don't want to believe the truth of the gospel. Those whose deeds are evil hate the light and do not come to the light lest their work should be exposed. Aldous, I'm mispronouncing this name, Aldous Huxley was a famous atheist philosopher in the 20th century. And he, a big aspect of the philosophy that he and his philosophical camp taught was that life is meaningless. He didn't become a Christian so far as we know, but listen to this honesty in his memoirs. He wrote towards the end of his life, for myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality, the right and wrongness that other philosophies presented, because it interfered with our sexual freedom. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, I assumed that it had no meaning, and I was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. Now, to translate, Aldous Huxley said, I chose to believe that the world was meaningless because I would rather live a meaningless life in a meaningless world than to turn from my sin. We hide in the dark because we don't want to admit that sin is sin. That, that's striking honesty from an unbeliever um, about his own motives. Normally, I mean, the, the Bible says that the heart is deceitful. We, we can't really understand our own motives. We, we think we know why we're rejecting the truth, but oftentimes there's deeper sinful reasons behind it. We hide in the dark because we don't want to admit that sin is sin, like Aldous Huxley. Or we hide because coming to Jesus means accepting that we're too sinful and helpless to impress God. 
and we really want to be impressive. I don't know if you've experienced that, but it seems to be a pretty common thing. We want to be impressive. And oftentimes, it's not even that we want God to be impressed with us. We really want other people to be impressed with us. And I think that's what's going on in part with uh, Nicodemus here in this passage. Remember, one of John's main points in the book of John is to show us the danger of pretend faith in Jesus. Some people, he says, believe, quote-unquote, in Jesus, as belie- but they believe in him as someone that he's not. And then when he shows who he really is and they get disappointed, they leave. And John's point is, they didn't really believe. The point of the book, again, was so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name, not this fake belief, not coming to him on your own terms, coming to get what you want, but not who he really is. True belief is the point of of the gospel. And there's a danger of pretend faith, pretend believing. At the end of chapter 2, right before this passage with Nicodemus, John wrote about some people believing in Jesus, but John says Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. And then John connects that directly, I think, with Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, in the dark, avoiding the light. Why? Because Nicodemus, it says, was a big deal. He's a big shot teacher, a Pharisee, a ruler of the people. And even though he and the other Pharisees, he said, knew Jesus was clearly sent from God, he had to find out more about Jesus without other people knowing that he was interested. He had to hide. He had to be discreet. He couldn't, couldn't let on that he is openly inquiring about this, this rabbi. Why? He needed to know, I believe, if it was possible to sign on with Jesus and still be a big deal. Can, can I sort of incorporate Jesus into, into my team and advance my goals and I can uh, uh, maintain my, my big deal-ness? Or do I have to humble myself and be just like everybody else? I'm not sure about this. Let me go by night so nobody even knows that it's on the table, just in case. That's why, I think, right out of the gate, when Nicodemus shows up and says, hey, we know that you're sent from God, Jesus goes right after his pride and says, you must be born again or you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus, who, who presumed, of if anybody's getting into the kingdom of heaven, it's me, it's the Pharisees, we're the experts, we're the good guys. And Jesus is saying, you need a total renovation. You don't just need a new teacher. You don't just need uh, a Messiah to come and, and, and stamp his approval on you that, that you're already doing what's right. No, you need a total rebirth, total renovation, top to bottom. A few, ju- uh, a few sentences later, Jesus says, you, in the Greek plural, you Pharisees do not receive my testimony. Why not? Because you're not willing to step into the light and be seen as helpless sinners like everybody else. God is speaking to us today. God is warning us. There have always been very religious people who appear to come to Jesus, like Nicodemus came to Jesus, but who are unwilling to really follow him. And if that's you, God is saying to you, come into the light. Let go of the sin. Let go of the disguise. I know you. I already know what you've done. I already know who you are better than you know yourself. And I love you anyway. I gave everything for you, God is saying. Jesus didn't die on the cross to save your reputation. He came and died and rose again to save 
you. He wants you. We'll see next week. God is seeking such people to worship him. You know, it's at this point that Nicodemus appears to be an example of imitation faith. But there's hope. Because as we continue on in the book, you see him a couple more times. And I think the text makes it very clear that he came into the light. So don't give up. But Jesus doesn't save pretend people. He doesn't save disguises. He saves real sinners like us. You might think, I can't tell anyone that I've, I've got all these doubts, I've got all these questions, and I'm not even sure that I'm a Christian. I can't tell anybody because maybe, maybe because I was baptized years ago and everybody else thinks I'm doing fine and they look like they're doing fine. And if I tell the truth and come out into the light, I would feel like a fake. What would they say about me if, I, if they knew I don't think I'm really saved? What would it say about me? It would say you're a real person who's loved by a real Savior. You are safer in the bright light of Jesus than you are in the dark. Jesus can handle your questions. Jesus can handle your doubts. He can handle your sin that you are terrified of confessing. You were made for the light. You were made for God. God loves you. He gave his son for you. He saves everyone who comes to him in truth. So God is saying, whatever it's looked like for you before, you don't have to hide. Don't hate the light. Come to the light. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. He won't condemn you. Jesus paid it all. There is no condemnation left for you if you will come to Jesus and trust in him today. And as I said, Nicodemus here is a picture of imitation faith in chapter 3, but as he goes on, it's, it's clear, I believe, that he came into the light. There is hope for you, no matter how long you have stayed in the dark, no matter how long you've worn a disguise, Jesus is willing to save you now. There is hope for your friends and your family, no matter how many years they've rejected the gospel and hated the light. So keep praying and keep pleading and keep sharing the gospel and keep loving people. There is hope for every tribe and tongue and nation because the Son of Man has been lifted up in our place to save all who believe. Jesus saves us from the judgment we deserve. Jesus saves us from the disguises we wear. And thirdly, Jesus saves us from the misery of self-centeredness. Jesus saves us from the misery of self-centeredness. Look again with me, if you would, at verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. There's a, a heart change there. We all naturally hate the light, but some people come to the light. How? They've been born again. The gospel comes, God changes their heart, and they do come into the light to show that their deeds and any good in them has been carried out in God, not in themselves. Not me. I'm, I'm the sinful one. He's the hero. So on the one hand, you've got people who's like, I can't, I can't admit the reality about myself because it's too painful. I cannot be known for who I really am. But when you're born again, you say, I'm willing to confess who I really am. And my deeds, anything that I've done is, is done in, in God. He gets the credit, not me. 
Being a Christian means having a willingness to be known truly and to be thought less of and let God get all the glory for your life. While Nicodemus at this point is a negative picture of verse 20, he's not coming to the light for fear of being seen. John the Baptist in these next verses is a positive picture of verse 21, coming to the light to be truly seen and letting God be glorified instead of self. Look at verse 22. This is a little bit longer passage, but a much shorter point. After this, John writes, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And then this beautiful verse that's easy to memorize and ought to be a banner over all our lives. He must increase, but I must decrease. So some of John's disciples were jealous of Jesus and thought John should be jealous too, right? You come to John, we're over here defending ourselves, and, and, and why are we putting up such a, a fight defending our way of doing things when, when the, the guy you gave credit to, uh, look at him, his, his following is growing, and it's outgrowing you. This isn't right. The, the predecessor should have the more glory. You were here first. You endorsed him. He owes you. He should be sending followers to you, but look, now he's more famous than us. I mean, than you. So what are you going to do about it, John? You should be upset. Go straighten Jesus out on this man. And John says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do about it. I'm going to rejoice that Jesus is getting more famous than me. This is what I want. Jesus is the point. And saying, that's what I've been saying this whole time. I'm not trying to use Jesus to make myself more famous. I want to be used by God however he sees fit to make Jesus more famous in all the earth. So it's a good thing when his movement grows and mine dwindles. If you're really following me, John's saying, you, you should be trusting in Jesus and, and obeying Jesus and honoring Jesus. So it's, I'm not in competition with Jesus. We hide in the dark with our sin and our reputation because we think that will make us happier. And here I think the pastor is saying that people tend to live to promote themselves and demand respect and even slander and compete with others because they really think that will make them happier. And we fear obscurity and insignificance and godly gospel humility because we think it will make us miserable but John is telling us, no, what's miserable is a self-centered life. Scraping and scrambling for praise and admiration and attention. Living for yourself, living for your own glory. Living to be impressive and praised is miserable. I don't know if y'all have experienced this, but it seems to me being fake is exhausting. Running from the light is exhausting. But gospel humility acknowledging Jesus is so great, he can be amazing for both of us. I don't have to be impressive. I can just be honest about who I am. 
Gospel humility brings true joy and freedom. John says, hey, the, the people of God are the bride of Christ. They're not my bride. I don't want them to stay back here with me. I want to usher them to the groom. And all our love of praise, all our posturing and pretending and, and, and subtly sort of humbly advancing ourselves, look how spiritual I am, look at, look at this, aren't you impressed with how I did this or that, it, in some way is, is kind of like going after Jesus' bride and trying, trying to get her to have attention fixed on you. Now, it doesn't mean that the new standard of spirituality is how little people can be aware of any good that you've done, okay? So there, there's, a, there's a distinction to be made here. In the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Okay, well, how does that fit? Well, flip a coin a few verses later. He says, beware of practicing your righteous deeds before others in order to be seen by them. In the next verse, he says, in order to be praised by them. So how do those two things fit together? Okay, are we supposed to be monks and totally hide and not let anybody know that we even read the Bible? No, it's, it's okay for them to see that sometimes that you've done good deeds. The difference is you're not doing it so that they would see and praise you, but so that they would see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And there is a difference. Sometimes it's hard to put into words, but there's a different smell about it, you know, of are you, are you posturing or are you really trying to encourage me in the gospel here? And we don't have to figure it all out. We don't have to be perfect now. We don't have to know that we've got absolutely pure motives before we get in, engaged in each other's lives and engaged in good, good works. We can just keep pressing on toward Jesus and asking him to purify our hearts like David said. Like, search me, O oh God, and try me. Uh, search my thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way that's everlasting. The difference between letting your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father on the one hand and beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them is on the one hand, you're, you're doing it because you need the approval. You need the praise. And John is saying it is so much better to come into the light, to acknowledge that we're a wreck and the only thing good about us is Jesus. And he loves us. We are made in his image and we are valuable. We have dignity and, and value and worth, but we're not bragging about ourselves. We don't need to posture. We don't need to perform. We don't need to make sure that somebody uh, praises us before the week is out or we're going to be miserable. No, there is joy in just accepting the, the position that God has given us and finding our joy in praising God, not ourselves. So many Christians feel like Following Jesus only really matters if people see you do it. That the really important roles in the kingdom are the ones that come with a stage and a podcast. Or at least somebody being really impressed with how spiritual you are. But it is good for us to decrease that Jesus may increase. Whatever our role is in making disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus, that's enough. Jesus is enough. He's the point. And the, the more we grow in knowing him, the more joyful we will be in people following Jesus, even if it means that we don't get as much attention in the process. That's okay. We've got nothing to prove and no one to impress. We just want to know him more and make him known. So yes, on the one hand, we should want to be as effective for the kingdom as we can be. So it's not, it's not like we have to just be hermits now, and that's the new spirituality. No, let's, let's go. Let's make disciples. Let's speak out about Jesus. Let's 
be active in good works, but only so God can get the credit, not us. In fact, next week we will look at this another beautiful passage where a Samaritan woman meets Jesus and then in, in, intuitively, just reflectively, goes and tells her whole town about Jesus and she leads them all ultimately to believe in Jesus. And we don't even know her name yet. We will one day. And we will worship Jesus together with her. Because through his death and resurrection, Jesus saves us from the judgment we deserve. Jesus saves us from the disguises that we wear. And Jesus saves us from the misery of a life enslaved to self-centeredness. So let's press on to know him and to make him known until our joy in him, as John said, is complete. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you that you love the world so much you gave your son to be lifted up in the place of sinners under the wrath of God. Paying the penalty of our sins so that all who now look to him, he who died and was raised again for us, as we just look to him and trust in him, we receive eternal life. God, I pray for people this morning who maybe have spent years enslaved to the darkness loving it and not wanting to come into the light or f- being afraid that people of what people will think. God, I pray that you would change hearts, shine the light, call us out of darkness to yourself. God, thank you that you've done that for all who have trusted in you. God, would you do it more and more and more? Would you do it for our friends and our family members who don't know you? Would you do it among the unreached, oh God? Would you send the gospel to the ends of the earth among Muslims and Buddhists and Sikhs? Would you save a people for yourself from every tribe and tongue and nation through the power of the gospel? And Lord, would you use us somehow to do this, to be part of that process as we continue to pray and you work through our prayers, as we continue to love you more and share you with others and others fall in in love and either we go or they go or somewhere. God, would you use our lives for the fame of your name throughout the world? Would you help us to, to drop the disguise? be willing to truly be known, even if it means being thought less of, because we don't want to try to steal your glory. We don't want to be fake. We want you to be seen for who you really are and us to be seen as who we really are. And and, and Lord, we delight in you. Thank you for the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We have this opportunity now to celebrate Jesus through the Lord's Supper. We take this every week because we love it. It's a beautiful picture that Jesus gives us of the work on the cross that he did for us. We've got a cup that has two seals on it. The first opens a wafer of bread that represents Christ's body. The second uh, opens a a cup of juice that represents Christ's blood. And as we take this, I I hope you're saying with your heart, uh, uh, what we're demonstrating with our body, what I hope you're saying with your heart, that just like Jesus... um, saved me initially and I demonstrated that with baptism, he is continually giving me life. I continue to trust in him. My body needs food, my soul needs Jesus. I receive him and I have life in him. We do ask if you uh, are are not a believer, if you don't know Jesus, to please refrain from taking this. Uh, The Bible says this is for believers and so we want to respect and honor that. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
Take a breath. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup. Let's stand when you're ready and let's worship him.